Ahoy, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 95 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. <sighs> and if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like the show, I have to burp. Send them your favorite episode. Also, video podcasts available now at thisismpod.com. That's thisismpod.com. You can find the latest episode uh, on our website. You can watch it there, or you can click through, find it on our YouTube channel where you can subscribe and uh, get updated when the new episodes come out. Um, Man, I had this moment just now as I was doing the intro where I started to feel out of breath. Like, sometimes when you're nervous on stage... You'll have that. You'll start talking. Or sometimes you're even in like an interview or something or a date or something or, I, you know, any time that you're likely to be nervous and you start talking and you realize, I actually don't think I have enough air in my lungs to get through this sentence. But you also think, well, I have to appear poised and composed so I can't not talk. So you just kind of push through and you end up sounding very weird when you take a breath. But, um... That usually, for me, is a sign of anxiety. And so as that's happening, I'm thinking, and as I'm talking about it, I'm thinking, what do I have to feel anxious about? Um, I did want to start off by, I guess, kind of apologizing. Not that I think too many people are actually impacted by it. Um, But at the top of um, the last episode, I said, well, if you watch the video podcast, you'll see that everything looks a lot nicer. And then I uh, didn't have the video posted in time. And uh, the reason for that is I was recording in 4K, which is new for me. And uh, I did not anticipate uh, how large the file size would be. I, knew, I mean, I knew it would be large. Um, but since getting a new phone, which I said I did, um, I had to upgrade my operating system. And uh, I never upgrade my operating system because things stop working. And for some reason, there was this problem when I upgraded that. There seemed to be trouble with how the computer was um, understanding how much file size or how much uh, hard drive space I had left. And uh, just a lot of things seemed to stop working, including my... Uh, video editing software. So long story short, I was not able to get the video uh, finished in time. Uh, It took me a couple days because I'm super fucking busy otherwise. Uh, But it's up now. And uh, I'm recording this again on the new phone, but uh, using uh, just not 4K. We're going back to 1080p. Or I should say we're still upgrading because we were formerly doing 720. I was recording via Zoom, but now we're just going to do 1080 because fuck it, why not? It doesn't really matter. You're watching this on fucking YouTube anyway, so uh, who needs 4K? Um, It's another lesson, though. I've always said when I started, in some ways I feel like it's the cosmos cursing me because, you know, I was saying when I started this podcast, one of the whole ideas was that I was just going to start using what I had. And uh, I don't know why I thought I should upgrade the video when there's only fucking five episodes left, at least in the first hundred episodes. Uh, And maybe we'll talk more about what the podcast will be or if it will continue later in this episode. Um, but it's like, why would you upgrade right at the very end here? Just keep doing what you're doing. It wasn't broken. Don't fix it. But I didn't. Of course, it made my life uh, very difficult. And also, I know if you listen to the podcast regularly, I don't know if you have to have discerning ears to even hear it, but um, I don't think it sounded as good either. And the reason for that is in addition to upgrading my operating system, the the audio editing software I was using before, doesn't operate on the new system. So uh, I had to upgrade to another version and had none of the presets, the compression, the EQ, all that sort of stuff um, on the last audio. So it probably sounds a little boomy, uh, a little bassier, maybe a little muddier. That's okay. I'm hoping, uh, I'm recording a little earlier tonight than I normally do. I'm hoping that I'll be able to um, sort of recreate what I've been doing pretty easily for this episode. So I hope it sounds good. If it doesn't, I, it shouldn't be unlistenable. Um, but it will be, uh, hopefully it'll sound as good as it usually does. If, if you could call it good, it'll sound, um, at the very least it'll sound like what it always does. Um, I was thinking, what do I have to be anxious about? Uh, this has been kind of a hard week for me. I think the last couple of weeks have been hard. And even though I've enjoyed doing the podcast more recently than I have in months, I would say, you know, with that has come some other difficult things. And I feel totally stupid saying it, (laughs) but I was talking at length last episode about 
you know, how uh, seeing Bo Burnham's inside get released was a devastating blow um, to me personally, because, um, you know, I've been sitting on my own creative project for a long time that I've been hesitating doing for, um, as I was thinking about it, I think I was throwing numbers around a little willy nilly on the last episode. So I don't even know if I'm talking in a coherent time frame anymore, but, um, I've been sitting on it for a long time. Um, since I've been dating my current girlfriend for five years next month, and, uh, I was probably meriting on this a year to six months before I met her. So, uh, at least five years, maybe six. And, um, you know, um, I- I'm not even comfortable talking about it really. I haven't, uh, I've sort of talked around this issue on this podcast. Um, and, uh, I haven't really talked about it with any specificity in my life with people that I know. Um, so in some ways I feel like I'm just, um, sounding like an idiot. Uh, but the, the only, the only thing I'm trying to convey is that, um, seeing inside get released, not having watched it myself because I haven't, um, but, um, feeling like I know what it is and, um, you know, what's cool about it. Um, I feel like that was kind of a death knell for this project that I wanted to do, feeling like I needed to be the first one, um, to sort of get to it and not having done it. Uh, has been pretty devastating. Um, I have uh, a good friend of mine, our MVP, Matt Evans, who called me after hearing the last episode. Um, and I, I don't think I'm betraying his confidence when I say, I think a lot of us sit with things like this, and I think Matt was kind enough to share some things that he wanted to do also, that he felt motivated. Uh, he felt a, renew, a renewed sense of motivation at pursuing them after hearing me talk about um, my own frustrations or my own desires to do something um, creative, something that meant a lot to me, uh, which is great. I, I, that's, I guess I was going to say that's part of the reason I talk about this stuff on the podcast. I'm not sure that's really true. I think that's, uh, that's something I, I hope is a good consequence of talking about it on the podcast, but I think I really just, whatever I do on this podcast, I do because I want to, you know, I need it for me. I say it for myself. Um, I'm glad that if it impacts other people, but, um, I think I'd be lying if I said that I that I talk about these things for that reason. Um, but the point is, is that I think at least the last couple of days this week this week has been hard because, and I'm I'm embarrassed even saying it, but I, you know because I had this conversation with Matt because I talked about it on the podcast, um, I brought it up in therapy for the first time, which is. Um, you know, I mean, I remember starting our session with, you know, saying like, I, I feel kind of like anxious about our session today because I have to talk about some things that are really like, I feel very vulnerable about. And I know that's what therapy is supposed to be. But, um, you know, to, to, to sort of talk about talking about vulnerable things is very easy. But to actually be in the position where you have to talk about something that's vulnerable to you, which may sound like fucking nonsense to other people, but to you, if it's truly vulnerable, it's not easy to talk about. And um, it's very easy to go through life. And I think I actually do this a fair amount, if I'm being honest, but I think it's easy to talk. There are things that seem vulnerable to other people that we can actually talk about. And um, because it sounds vulnerable to other people, we get to be in their eyes, the type of person who's comfortable talking about vulnerable things. But the truth is, we all have things that are really vulnerable to us that we don't show other people. And um, so it's insane and kind of embarrassing for me to talk that, you know, to, or to even to admit really in this way that there are things that I, I haven't talked about in therapy. Because that's supposed to be the space where you're supposed to talk about everything. And if you're not talking about everything in therapy, then I feel like I'm not doing therapy right. And um, especially something that's been weighing on me for so long. Um, Again, if I'm being honest, I don't feel comfortable talking about it. And uh, I don't feel comfortable telling you what this project is necessarily. I just, I don't feel ready to talk about it. I don't think I should. I feel like to sort of force myself to talk about it is kind of, uh, it feels irreverent in a way. It also doesn't feel, (laughs) 
like sometimes people have things, whether it's, um, I'm trying to think of something concrete. Let's imagine that you're dating and you have an STD. Now there's this, you know, there's this thing about disclosure, self-disclosure that because we're trying to present ourselves as a society or a culture now that, that, that has the hard conversations, you know, that talks about the vulnerable stuff that is, you know, all of our spaces are safe spaces and all of our spaces, spaces are brave spaces. You know, we sort of feel like there's this, uh, we sort of get um, volunteered into conversations that we may not be ready for in the name of like being vulnerable or whatever. Um, so I think, I don't know, I'm just imagining someone being like very uh, blunt about the fact, like if you're dating or whatever, then you need to disclose that you may have an STD or something, you know, that you may need to reveal things about yourself that whatever, the other person's entitled to know certain things. But, um, I think, uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm talking myself into a corner here, but, um, I think I'm just trying to say like, you should only share what you feel comfortable sharing. And, uh, dating is, uh, it's a mutual interview and, uh, you, you, you don't owe people uh, conversations. You, you, you don't owe disclosures to people that I guess aren't necessarily re- relevant in the moment. It could be anything. It could be your, you know, the full breadth of your orient- sexual orientation. It could be your health history. It could even be your gender identity. I mean, I know that's a little controversial, but I'm just trying to say when you have truly vulnerable bits of information to you, um, the other person, the other person, there's some onus on the other person to demonstrate to you that they, that this actually is a a really safe place to share that information, because whether or not the other person perceives it this way, you're actually sharing vulnerable information about yourself, and their reaction, intentional or not, could have devastating consequences to you. And it doesn't mean that uh, we can control what someone's reaction is going to be, but we kind of have to prepare ourselves, you know, steal ourselves for what that reaction is going to be. And if we're not ready for that, then we we shouldn't share it. And um, so anyway, I'm really talking about myself here to say I just don't feel comfortable. I honestly don't feel comfortable talking about the specifics. So I guess I'm not, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not trying to be uh, secretive or mysterious. I'm just actually not comfortable talking about it. And I said as much to my therapist. Um... The thing I equate it to, though, and as I'm thinking about this idea of like, well, if I feel like if I'm not talking about everything in therapy, then I'm not actually doing therapy right. I remember, you know that your boy is sober. Um, I remember, you know, when I was, you know, the only two substances I've ever used in my life with any regularity or, or meaningfully for that matter have been alcohol and weed. And, um, you know, I was a daily drinker for a decade of my life. Um, a daily pot smoker for a number of years, but, um, you know, I drank every day or smoked weed every day to basically like self-medicate. Um, and not that the specifics matter. Um, you know, it wasn't an overwhelming amount of either. But I know for me personally, I mean, when I ended up going to like a program, finally, you know, I was embarrassed that the numbers, you know, the amount of alcohol I was drinking or the amount of weed I was smoking was kind of laughable (laughs) to other people. So it it kind of took some, uh, I don't know if resiliency is not the word, but it, it took, it took something, you know, to sort of sit in those meanings and realize that the consequences of my actions were nowhere near approaching what most of the people were having to deal with. Um, but just kind of know that I needed to trust that I needed to be there and know, know for myself that I needed to be there, that it wasn't about, uh, losing a job or losing a relationship or, uh, having estranged children. You know, I had never experienced any of those things. I don't think there was anybody in my life who would have ever said, if you, if you ask them to name, uh, you know, make a list of 10 things about me that were a problem, I don't think anyone would have named substance use as one of them. Even my girlfriend at the time, when I told her that I was going to quit drinking, was kind of perplexed, but just kind of trusted my judgment about it. What I'm trying to say, though, is um, the first time I quit drinking, I remember being a year into therapy before I even told my therapist that I drank every day. Now, of course, it's because I'm ashamed about it. Um, But when I think through that process, 
you know, a year, you know, some people might think it sounds crazy for a year to be a time period that someone might wait to disclose information, but I don't think that it is. And as I'm talking about it, actually, this kind of goes back to something that my therapist said to me, you know, at the beginning of our therapy. I mean, I've been with her for at least 10 years, maybe even a little bit longer. I don't know. I can't, can't crunch the numbers right now, but at some point in our therapy, you know, the beginning of our therapy, I was doing a lot of dating and I remember we were just talking about meeting people and how long does it take to get to know someone. And the longest I had ever dated anyone at that time was like eight months. And so I had never really had a long-term relationship. And I remember we were, I don't even remember the context necessarily, but my therapist said something like, well, you know, it takes a long time to get to know someone. I mean, for the first year, at least everybody's on their best behavior. And I was so taken back by that. I said, Are, really? A year? And she said, oh, yeah. And I kind, I kind of knew what she meant. You know, I, I, of course, I knew what it was like to like go on dates and try to dress well and take care of yourself. And, you know, I understood the concept, at least hypothetically, that when you get to know someone, you begin to settle into being comfortable. You start to fart around them or go to the bathroom around them, or maybe you'd gain 10 pounds or, um, I mean, hell, the last episode was called the ponytail date. You know, my girlfriend needed uh, four or five or six dates or whatever it was before she, actually, this is a great connection. I was saying on the last episode that for my girlfriend, she had this self-image of herself, right, where, you know, I think she's naturally beautiful. So when I hear this perspective of hers, I kind of I laugh at it. It's kind of endearing to me. But for my girlfriend, she needed on date five or six to like put her hair up and not wear makeup and kind of like go do something like hiking where she wasn't wearing nice clothes and kind of like observe me and see if I was still in, uh, attracted to her. You know, that for her was a very vulnerable thing. That was a necessary exercise to know if I was the type of person that she wanted to continue seeing. Now, I, th- I thought it was a little unwarranted. When she eventually revealed to me that she had this experience, I was sort of taken aback because I think my girlfriend's naturally beautiful. You know, that, that didn't even register for me. The date that for her was kind of a, a threshold date for us just kind of came and went unnoticed for me. Um, but in a way that's kind of what I'm talking about for her, that was very vulnerable for her. That was very meaningful. And, um, you know, it would be, um, I don't want to say inconsiderate, but, um, you know, that's what it takes for her. It took some time and she needed this exercise to sort of, um, see if I was somebody that she could trust in a way. And not that we always describe it that way. Like we don't think about it as trust, but that's what vulnerability is. If we're going to go deeper with someone, if we're going to go to the next level, it takes a certain amount of trust. And so as I connected back to therapy, for whatever reason, it took me a year before I was willing to admit to the person. And I, I I say admit, that's what I mean to admit to the person that I had been talking around this issue, uh, talking about, uh, you know, a litany of other things that I had never shared with anyone else about my family, about my upbringing, about my, my feelings, my life in general. You know, it's not like I was not being vulnerable, but there were things I was hiding, you know, because I was ashamed. I knew there was something wrong with it. And I was, you know, it's weird when we think about the things that we're ashamed of, if you had to describe shame or fear or what, you know, what the fear is, our minds are sort of in two places. Because on the one hand, we know in a therapist's office or a doctor's office, if you talk about substance use or you talk about embarrassing symptoms, there's no fucking way they're going to be grossed out. There's no way that they're going to be repulsed. I mean, you think a therapist... You think you're the first person to walk into their therapist's office and have some kind of uh, habitual substance use? Or you think you're going to walk into your gastroenterologist's office and be the first one to tell them you have loose stools? This dude is a gastroenterologist. Fecal matter is the number one topic with every patient that he talks to, for the most part, probably. You know, the example I always use in training... And actually, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, we've had this conversation too, because when I used to do episode clips, which I fucking don't do anymore and haven't done for over a year, probably, 
we did have this conversation about Dr. Pimple Popper, and I was comparing her to somebody else I can't remember. But Dr. Pimple Popper, to me, is the perfect example. So we'll go back to that one. Um, I bring this up in training with uh, volunteers on the crisis line. You know, when you think about the idea of suicidality or you think about uh, any other topic that somebody who may be calling into a crisis line is talking to you about, they are, you know, you, you are, I'm thinking of Joseph Conrad here, the secret sharer, right? You're somebody that, and you know that's going to be the title of the fucking episode. As soon as I said that, I knew. You're like the secret sharer. This person is calling into you and they want to show you something. Now, I'm not saying it's always something that they've never shown anybody before, but they want to show you something very vulnerable to them. And let's just pretend it's suicidality. People call into a crisis line about all types of things, but maybe it's having thoughts of suicide. They're wanting to show you something that they may not feel comfortable showing everybody. And I remember being on tour one time. Um, I don't think it was the Matt Nathanson tour. I think it was a... Uh, but I remember, I, or I feel like I was in San Diego at the same hotel that I stayed at when I was on tour with Matt Nathanson. It could have been the follow-up tour. It could have been the same tour. I don't know. It's some Motel 6 by the fucking airport, which is crazy because the planes like fly like right over you. But I remember being in that room and watching uh, Dr. Pimple Popper. I don't have cable. The only time I ever saw like cable TV was, was when I was on tour. And I remember seeing the show, uh, Dr. Pimple Popper. And first of all, some people love that shit. Like, they love going on YouTube and watching videos of pimples being expressed and, and fistules. Is that the word? Fistules and cysts and everything. Just, they love watching all that shit. I'm uh, grossed out by it. But what I, what, I guess what I did take away from that viewing experience was the idea that people come to you and show you something, some growth on their neck or their face or whatever that has... Uh, you know, made their life a bit of a nightmare for many of them. It's like living like the elephant man for most of them. Um, and they're bringing it to somebody who this is their job. This is what they deal with all the time. And yet they're still shy and embarrassed. But you can tell, at least the way the show is edited, and I'm sure this is how it actually plays out. They come in and when they take off whatever is hiding their face or reveal their face to this person even though a part of them knows intellectually that this is this person's job, they're not going to be repulsed, and it probably isn't the worst thing they've ever seen, you know, they're very embarrassed. And yet they're met with somebody who, not in an irreverent way, you know, pretending like there's nothing wrong, which is its own type of, um, I don't know, I was going to say emotional bankruptcy. That's not the right word. Um, unintelligence, you know? Like, you can't just pretend like nothing's wrong, but you just have to be sensitive to what they're going through, but also display confidence. I mean, when you're working on a crisis line, you know, you talk about things directly. You don't use euphemisms to talk about death and suicide. You know, we don't ask somebody, you know, are you... Sorry, I'm either going to yawn or burp here. You know, you don't ask people, are you maybe possibly having thoughts of harming yourself or doing something that you may or may not regret that's that's not a good way to ask a question you want the answer to so you ask directly are you having thoughts of suicide you know do you ever think about killing yourself you know because now we really know what we're talking about um and how does this relate to Dr. Mipple Popper? Well, there's somebody who's just looking at you very sort of comfortably and being willing to talk to you very explicitly about your symptoms. Oh, this is what you're dealing with, and this is what it looks like, and this is what I can do to help you, and this is what the process is going to be. You know, but they're kind of dialed into how you're feeling, that this might be a difficult conversation for you to have or hear or to be sitting here, and they're attuned to that. Um, and actually, I always think, like, at one point it cuts to this scene where she's, like, in her doctor's waiting room, you know, she's apparently a part of some practice, and there's other dermatologists or whatever you want to call them who uh, work there as well, and she's, like, sharing, you know, seeing her last patient, and she was like, oh, we just, we expressed this cyst or whatever, and all the pus came out like cottage cheese, oh, it was awesome, and you can tell, like, she really loves her job, um, anyway, 
what am I trying to say? Yeah, people bring vulnerable things to you, and um, regardless of what other people want for you, how other how easy other people think it should be, you know, like somebody. I mean, I guess it's not a bad example because you know someone's living with like a huge goiter on their neck or something that has destroyed their quality of life. They haven't left their home, and yet. You know, they go see Dr. Pimple Popper and uh, not that it's cured overnight, but they're on the road to recovery. You know, it's just a matter of doctor visits before their life is completely transformed. And I'm sure if you ask those people, they said, damn, I wish I would have done this six years ago or four years ago or whatever it is. You know, but things happen when they happen. You know? And so I guess I'm just trying to say that when I finally told my therapist, hey, you know what, I actually like drink every day, (laughs) you know, uh, of course her response was like, you know, not, she didn't respond in a, you know, she wasn't horrified. She wasn't angry with me. I mean, I think that's part of it too. I think on some level too, we keep this a secret because we're not comfortable sharing it. And then when we do, I think one thing that perpetuates the secret is that we're scared that when, if we ever do, now it's been so long that if we ever do come out with it, not only are we sort of holding whatever shame and, and guilt that we, we, we feel or the, the repulsion that the person might have, you now couple that with the fact that they might be angry that we didn't tell them earlier. So it sort of compounds itself. You know, there's sort of, sometimes we feel like there's a window of opportunity for these disclosures, and if they pass, we don't feel comfortable sharing them. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I think I have too many analogies. I'm just sort of juggling because I think about the STD and I think, well, <laughs> you know, that's probably not a good analogy because there is some consequence to the person. And of course, you definitely have to disclose it before you have intercourse, et cetera. So, you know, I guess I have to think through these. That's the problem of a stream of consciousness podcast, I guess. But um, yeah, uh, anyway, I'll, this is all a fucking very long-winded way of saying that I'm sorry. I don't feel comfortable telling you about the specifics of this creative project and uh I also told my therapist that while I am now telling you this, I'm, I'm still not comfortable talking about the details. Oh, yes. Now I understand. I remember some time in therapy, and I don't remember what we were talking about. But I remember saying something like, well, what if I, you know, I have this belief about therapy. I still have it, even though I've been told that's not the case. And I, and I believe it. It's, I still, there are so many examples where I still see that this is my operating uh, what's the word? Uh, this this is how this is the the, the uh, frame. This is the lens that I sort of see therapy through. Even though I know it's not true, that I still continue to operate as if this is the way it it works. Which is, I always believe on some level, you know, like a personal trainer or a nutritionist, that therapy was something that I would go to and be fixed. You know that I was dealing with a certain set of problems that I would go to therapy and talk about. And even though my therapist couldn't give me the answers, she kind of knew what they were already as if she had read enough books or worked with enough clients going through maybe not identical but similar things, you know, or that people are, you know, sort of, uh, you know, there's variability, but more often than not, we're like animals and, uh, you know, we think we're unique and special, but the truth is we all respond to relative traumas in somewhat the same ways and the process and the path to recovery is very similar you know, um, that there was some emotional work to be done. But at the end of the day, upon meeting me, my therapist kind of knew what our trajectory over X number of years would be. And it was just a matter of whether or not I could get myself to that place, whether or not I could do the emotional work. And I had two insights in therapy, which terrified me (laughs) because that was my lens and continue to terrify me if I'm being honest. But I remember at some point in therapy, like talking about that, You know, my therapist was sort of, um, we were talking about some existential issue that I was dealing with, and she was also expressing wonderment about not knowing what the answer is. And says, yeah, I don't know what that's about. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to say, like, you know, we still need to talk more about that and understand what that's all about. And I remember saying, but, you know, you say that, but you kind of know, don't you? She was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you know, I understand that, you know, I need to have my own insights and... You know, but on some level, I mean, I I guess I've always assumed that on some level, you know the answers, but you kind of have to pretend like you don't because you you need me to find the answers for myself. And she said, no. (laughs) And I was like, really? She said, 
Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that question. If I if I did, I I would happily tell you. And I never really thought about it. But that terrified me. And I didn't realize it consciously at the time. I had to, you know, we had to continue talking about this in other sessions. But I, I think it's because in that moment, because that was my framework, and in some ways it was actually my, it was a coping strategy in and of itself. I'm not, I mean, you know, we use that kind of word all the time, whether it's on the crisis line or in therapy. So I, I, I think you know what I'm talking about. But, you know, that was, uh, in some ways, that was the way I saw therapy because that's what I needed it to be. I was suffering and I hoped that there was an expert out there who could basically tell me what my problem is and fix me like a personal trainer. You know, I needed someone to yell at me and say, fix yourself enough times, or I needed to be accountable to somebody. But that if I just went to therapy, committed to the process and listened and took direction, you know, and stayed committed that eventually I would be better. And to be sitting across from that person and them like, you know, it's like, 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 a, like, a, like, a, like a tour guide or something. And then having them look up to you after you've been wandering around the fucking jungle for hours and hours and saying, well, come on, just tell me, where are we going? And they're like, oh, I have no idea. And you're like, whoa, 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 you don't know where we're going? And they're like, no, I have no fucking clue. I'm actually following you. You're like, oh, fuck. Well, now we're really screwed. Because I'm fucking lost. And if you don't know where we're going, well, now we're really fucked. Like, that's how, it, that would, that's how I felt emotionally. I mean, even thinking about it now, I mean, if, if you really think through that, you know, I think part of why I hoped that was what therapy was, right? Yeah, and I still want it to be that way, the way I insist on it being that way, is because if it's not that, and I'm really in the driver's seat, then I have to take control of the ship. I can't look to somebody else's, you know, I can't... Um, trust somebody else to get me there. I'm honestly, you know, as much as anyone can be, I'm in control of my own life. I'm not in control of everything. But I should say maybe I'm not in control of my own life, but I'm responsible for my own life. You know, and although my therapist will help me as much as she can and be available for, you know, and does have expertise and can provide feedback, et cetera, et cetera. She's not the expert of me and where I'm going. And honestly, it relies on me to tell her that. And so, you know, there was a part of me, like when I told her about my drinking, that she already knew. And she didn't. She didn't know until I told her. And so I get to bring this back to the present when I talk about this creative project. In some ways, when I, when I brought this up in therapy and her response was, um, such, there was such surprise... I think in the last week, I really thought we've been talking about this. Wow, I'm just kind of saying this out loud, but I thought we had been talking about this. Or I should say, I've been talking about this. She didn't know. Because I was, you know, like I was talking from that place. I was talking from the place where this idea was coming from, but I wasn't talking about it. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Hmm. I thought we had been talking about this, but clearly we haven't. Hmm. Powerful stuff. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, there was another point I wanted to bring up. I feel a little forced going there now. But I was saying there were sort of two plot twists for me in therapy. One that my therapist didn't know where we were going. And then, at one point, this idea that, you know, I don't know if I, I did, I did not use this language at a time, but maybe because I'm thinking about Dr. Pimple Popper. I remember I had a friend growing up. Uh, I'll just use his nickname. I won't say his real name. We called him A-Rod. And he had a cyst. He had this cyst behind his ear. And the time I remember, I only remember being at Ed DeBevix in Phoenix, Arizona. Do you know Ed DeBevix? I don't even know if they're fucking in, in business anymore. But it's a chain of restaurants where they're rude to you. It's like a 50s, 60s diner and their whole thing is like they're rude to you. That's like the gimmick. Like people go in there because they kind of want to have a 
snarky kind of old style waitress who kind of like gives them some attitude and stuff. Like I remember going there and like wanting a refill on my drink and she just like pointed to the soda fountain and says, right over there, mister. And I was like, oh shit, okay. Now the payback though is even though they're rude to you, which I think as a server would be awesome, the sort of great equalizer is that every quarter to the hour, they have to get up on the bar and dance to some shitty song. It's like the worst part about working at a chain like Applebee's or TGI Fridays or whatever the fuck is that you have to learn the shitty song, the shitty happy birthday song, and like dance like a monkey every time you get summoned to sing it. That was like the Ed DeBevix equivalent. It was like every quarter to the hour you had to get up and fucking do the twist or something on the bar. Um, But I remember being there with a group of friends, including my friend A-Rod, who had a cyst like right behind his ear. And he had it like looked at or lanced or something. And I remember it coming back. And I said, I thought you got that taken care of. And he says, yeah, well, they didn't get all of it. And that, I had never heard that before, but it was like, if you express a cyst or something and there's still some pus or something in there, it just begin, it just festers again. It just sort of fills up. And, uh, I, and so I guess I'm trying to relate the two, which is like, I, there's a part of me that believes like, I, if you don't get all of your secrets out in therapy, you're going to remain sick. Like there's this, actually, there's a phrase in recovery, which I've never really heard said in this context. I've just heard about it. Um, which is you're only as sick as your secrets connecting it back to the secret share, I guess, but you're only as sick as your secrets. Um, you know, is that true? I don't know. I think the problem is, is people like alliteration, you know? So if you just say something and alliterate some words, it sounds like profound. So you're only as sick as your secrets. Okay. Uh, I think on some level that's true. You know, I think you'll continue to be affected by the things that you don't share and process and talk through. Um, but I think I always felt like a, a like a like a prerequisite of me doing good work in therapy was that I would have to reveal everything, and uh, it was probably in some meta conversation, like the one my therapist was having about you know knowing where we were going, that uh, I was like, well, what if I don't feel comfortable sharing things? And she's like, that's okay. And I was like, well, what if I never feel comfortable sharing it? She's like, that's okay too. And I was just like, what? You know, because at first, because this is your lens, and in some ways this is what you're wanting out of your therapist, your first reaction is like, whoa, what the fuck? Like, are you sure you're qualified? <laughs> like, is this the kind of therapy that I want? You know, because you're approaching it like a personal trainer. It'd be like your personal trainer saying, no, you don't have to run today. Oh no, you don't have to eat. You don't have to eat that. You're like, wait a minute. What kind of self-destructive behavior is this person giving me permission to engage in? But therapy is something else. I think that's the hardest. It continues to be the hardest thing for me to wrap my mind around. You know, what I continue to want therapy to be is this thing that I needed when I was like fucked up 15 years ago. Or that I thought I needed. That's the real plot twist. What I needed was something completely different. I thought I needed someone to, you know, get me to do the things I wasn't doing. I think the plot twist is you should just be doing more of what you're already doing. If you could just let yourself be happy doing the things that you do do, that's the real Jedi shit right there. It's not convincing yourself or uh, tying yourself into a pretzel to get yourself to do a thousand things that you're not doing right now. It's to relax and let go and give yourself permission to be happy doing the things that you want to do. Now I say that with some qualification, right? Because of what you like to do is eat, uh, you know, three large pizzas and smoke a quarter pound of weed and and eat a ton of soda every day. Well, then (laughs) that's not going to make you happy, probably. You know, some of the things that we do are coping mechanisms, self-medication you know, those are things we feel compelled to do, but that's not the same thing as like things that we do. Um, you know, um, so what am I saying? Oh, what am I saying? I don't know if this is what I'm saying, but what I feel in this moment is I guess I'm just surprised that... It, here I am a decade or more into therapy and there's like, I, I'm still, I still sit across from this person and clearly there's things I'm not comfortable sharing with them. 
And I think, God, man, what is it going to take? <laughs> I've spent more time with this person. You know, I think by this time I've, I've obviously spent more time with my girlfriend in five years than I spent with this therapist in uh, 10 or 11 or 12 or whatever it is. But, uh, I mean, compared to my girlfriend, this therapist has seen many, way more chapters of my life. Right? Who knew me when I was like, you know, a, sh- a shell of the person that I am now. The husk of a human being. That would have been a good title for the episode as well. <laughs> when I was the husk of a human being, my therapist knew me. Uh, there's something biblical on that. Like, when you were dust, I knew you, or I don't know. I don't know. It's some germinal state, my therapist knew me. Um, and yet I still don't feel comfortable with this person on some level. There's things I don't share with them. Now, my therapist would tell me that that's okay. But for me, I still feel guilty about that. I feel um, defended. And anyway, to sort of get back to this point of this whole creative project is I feel like, um, sorry, I keep looking over here because my, my setup has changed with this new camera. So I kind of have to walk, I have to look over here to see uh, how much time I have left here on the podcast. Um, you know, what, key, you know, when I think about this creative project, there's nothing else I've ever felt in my life that I feel more convinced is like what I'm like, I use supposed to do oftentimes in another context, but I mean, I feel called to do. When I had the idea to do this thing, it was, uh, my life was magical. I felt like the cosmos was giving me a gift. I felt like I was um, pushing through something creatively. I was entering a space that not many people get to see. Or if they do, I never heard it articulated before. At that time, I'd been pursuing music and, and felt surrounded by a lot of nice people, but that there was something soulless in what they were doing and that I was seeking something else, something deeper. And uh, that I had finally stumbled on something like my birthright in some way, like what I was meant to be doing. And uh, it was scary and overwhelming. And I felt, uh, I felt like I was going crazy because alongside this, I was also drinking again and smoking every day and also getting into the I Ching and feeling like I was having these consciousness-raising spiritual experiences. And I thought, I'm going fucking nuts. But I also felt at the time that I was finding myself. I thought, here was something that would... Here is the meaning-making act of my life that everything comes together in. This project makes sense of everything I've ever experienced, everything I've ever enjoyed, every minute of my life I've ever spent doing whatever it was I was doing makes sense in this context. I can't imagine anything, I I can't imagine anything else being more clear. And yet I, for whatever reason, I can't bring myself to do it. And I said this in therapy, and you know, you may laugh at this, but like, it's like Hamlet. And you think, well, what the fuck makes you Hamlet? And I think, well, Hamlet wrote, or Shakespeare wrote Hamlet for a reason, to personify something. I don't know what it was for Shakespeare, but there's something about Hamlet's struggle that Shakespeare understood very deeply. feeling compelled and called to do one great act and being too scared to actually do it. That has to be a drama that um, Hamlet would not be around if that didn't resonate for people. It's not that people watch and go, oh, I want to kill my uncle too. God damn it, why can't I bring myself to do it? It's because the allegory, the drama itself, personifies something that we all experience. You know, what's the Thoreau quote? Uh, the, the majority of men live lives of quiet desperation or something like that. I guess I always thought that that meant that most people live, they never come to know what their calling was, that they just kind of live feeling their way around in the dark, like trying to identify something worth doing with their time. And I think there are many people who do live that way. 
maybe what I experienced isn't that special. Maybe it's universal. I mean, one does get the sense, you know, when I thought I was going crazy, it's that dichotomy. Are you supposed to do what you feel called to do or do you just live like everybody else? You know, we've talked about Coriolanus, you know, the people are sheeple. (laughs) People are sheeple, man. Right? Everybody's just a clone. Everybody's just a robot. Just going about their lives, making the same mistakes, wanting to be a part of the herd. It's, that's how we talk about life in society. As if everybody's all, everybody else is dead inside, but we're the ones who are alive. Like we have some kind of secret, some flame that we're sheltering, trying to keep from going out. But what if everybody's doing the same thing? I mean, I think I used this example on the last episode. Um, I'm sorry that I keep coming back to the same topics, but in a way, that's what therapy is, too. You just talk about the same shit for 12 years and hope that it gets a little bit better. But, you know, that example of the person waiting for a sign from God to save them. You know, they wave off the first responders. They wave off uh, the people in a canoe. They wave off the helicopter because they insist they're waiting for a sign from God. And yet when they go to heaven, God says, didn't you see the first responders? Didn't you see the couple in a canoe? Didn't you see the emergency helicopter? I was trying to get you the fuck out of there, man. You know, I tell myself I'm waiting for a sign from God that I'm supposed to do this. And yet in the past six years, I've been in turmoil because I I feel like uh, not only have I felt nothing but the wind at my back to do this thing, not doing it, I, I genuinely feel my very personal experience of perception is that I've seen it broken up into, you know, 600 pieces and carried out everywhere else in the world. And, uh, you know, in some ways I I think about it now and all the pain and anguish I feel like, oh, it's too late. Oh, it's already been done. I feel like, I wonder if the real Jedi perspective is that that itself is just another defense mechanism keeping me from doing it. I couldn't bring myself to do it before. I was defending myself somehow. It's too crazy. It's too stupid. It's too this. It's too that. I'm nuts. And now that I think it's too late. Oh, it's too late. I can't do it. I can't do it. What about just doing it? Without any regard for what it's supposed to be, how successful it's supposed to be. It's about doing it. It's about the living experience of it whether or not it means anything else to anybody else. You can't, you have to live with yourself, man, or woman, or non-binary person. You have to live with yourself. You can't run away from yourself. It doesn't, you know, you know who doesn't, you know, you know who doesn't live close to themselves and only, like only lives through what people see them as? That's Trump, man. Do you want to be Trump? Who cares if everybody else in the world, and by the way, I know half the world hates Trump, and hopefully most of the world hates Trump, but that person is surrounded. It's enough for Trump to be admired and to wield power over people and to be seen as a successful person. Who doesn't care about what's actually in his bank account or his moral fiber or how good of a person he actually is? It is enough for Trump to be perceived as something. All the bankrupt pastors of the world and businessmen... They only want to be seen as a success. How spiritually bankrupt is that? Wouldn't you rather be seen as a pauper and know you're a prince? Than to be seen as a prince and know that you are fucking destitute. How many more movies do we have to see... Or celebrity stories do we have to see before we understand it doesn't make you happy? The only chance you have of being happy is having the courage to do the thing. And who knows, even if it doesn't make you happy, at least you know now. Because I got, I got news for you. 
Guess who dies at the end of Hamlet? Spoiler alert. It's Hamlet. But he does the thing. His uncle dies too. He does the thing. And in a way, maybe he dies because he's lived his purpose. The work is done. He doesn't have to live anymore. And also, when you read Hamlin, could you imagine him living the rest of his life? Like he doesn't get to live happily ever after and right off into the sunset. How could he? I killed my uncle and then what? I just sort of go on and go to school? I mean, I think Hamlet's like supposed to be pretty young. Isn't he like 18? Maybe even younger or some crazy shit like that. Um, He has to die. You know what I mean? He doesn't get to walk around the stage for four and a half hours talk saying, God damn it, I got to kill my uncle. I should kill my uncle. Why can't I kill my uncle? And then kill his uncle. And then just like, oh, good. glad that's over. Like having a healthy bowel movement, he just gets to go on with his day. That's it. That's the drama that we're dealing with here. Even talking about it, though, this is, I mean, this is the dichotomy that I live with. I've spent 100 episodes talking about this, and you better believe this is going to be the topic of conversation for the next four episodes. (laughs) I will have spent 100, and actually technically 101 episodes, talking about this, I'm sure, talking around this. In some ways, this is like therapy. And and you know what? Oh, bringing it all together for you. Connecting all the dots for you. Guess who you are? You're the secret chair. I've been talking around this with you for the last 100 episodes. Technically 96, but it will be 100. As long as you keep showing up. I've been talking around this for the last so many episodes. And yet... I'd like to think the needle is moving on this, but... For all my pontificating, for all my bloviating, for all my whatever... I haven't internalized any of this yet. You know, I had this lyric that's been sort of rattling around my head forever, and I kind of have a melody that goes along with it too, but it's like, and who knows, I maybe even sang it on the podcast before. We just keep having the same conversations over and over again, but, you know, I have this lyric, insight never led me to action. You know, and I came up with that, uh, who knows how long ago. Over a decade, probably. I've I've had that for years and years and years and years. And of course, here I am sitting with it. And that's like, I have to remind myself of that. Like, sometimes you write a song like a decade ago and you think, well, I don't know where that came from. And then you listen to it and you go, holy shit, I knew everything. (laughs) You know, all the insights I'm having today I already fucking knew, man. It's crazy. Um, In some ways, that's kind of the magic of art. But I, you know, today I feel that way. I feel like... There's no other book I can read. There's no other insight I need to have. I don't even, I mean, I I feel like I definitely need more therapy, but not, there's nothing, there's nothing else to learn. There's nothing else to see, you know? There's only left to do. There's no other insight to have. There's no other sign to see. I've already seen them all. The lights are green. The light is green. Green green means go. And yet, and yet, and yet, here we are.
Where are your thoughts going? My therapist would say. Well, they're going a lot of places. They're going to Chinese. I had a test on Friday. I think I did really well. I did a bunch of homework today. I have a lot of homework to do. Actually, I'm cutting my hours at work. <laughs> I was talking with my brother, and he, I don't know, I think he said, like, me and my, I guess now wife, we're talking about it. You, know, you might want to pace yourself. And he means this in a loving way. And I said, oh, I am. I'm, I'm actually cutting my hours, you know, and, you know, I have a couple of responsibilities at work. But in one area, I'm cutting that time in half to have more time to do homework, I said. And he said, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> Making time to do more homework is not what I'm talking about. You should make more time to do something else or nothing. Um, yeah. You know, it's hard. I, I, I know we've talked a lot about this creative project today, but even like switching my major at the last minute, I feel like is an exercise in what I'm trying to cultivate to sort of steal myself to do the thing. You know? If you had to justify on paper to other people why your time at school is worthwhile or why studying something is worthwhile, I don't know why studying comparative literature or East Asian religion, thought, and culture is worthwhile. I don't know what I'm going to fucking do with it. But I know that's how I spend my time anyway. Uh, if I'm going to get through the next two years academically, which is very difficult, um, if it's going to be hard, I want it to be hard in this direction. It sounds so sexual. <laughs> That's what she said, right? That's fucking bullshit. But the truth is, is if I'm going to spend two years studying a lot, that's the only thing I really see myself carving time out for and accomplishing with any type of sanity and not becoming increasingly resentful. If I had to take more psych classes, I don't think I'd make it. I'd probably find some, some, some way to implode after the first semester or so. Um, so I don't know. To be 36 and, um, you know... Um, investing in a degree. I have no idea what I'm going to do with it. Um, and also feeling like I'm, um, summoning the courage to, uh, enter into some kind of creative project that might seem like a complete waste of time to other people. I don't know how to justify that. And, uh, that's easy to say. And of course, if I ever do it and people enjoy it, I get to say, well, that's courage. But, um, you know, to be actually looking that task in the face, that's, uh, that's very different. You know, in, in a sense, that's what I'm talking about. It's very easy to talk a big game. And then I don't. Ooh, you know that's the name of a song I wrote. I think the first song I wrote, <laughs> when I hadn't written a song for years, when I was like 23, the first song I wrote was called I Talk a Big Game and Then I Don't. Well, look at you. Actually, no, I take that back. <laughs> uh, it was called, uh, that was the second song I wrote. The first song I wrote was called... Um, it's the last song on a record called Praise Box that I wrote as the Plastic Arts. I don't know what for. And that's the story of my fucking life. But that song is called I Don't Know What For. And then I wrote I Talk a Big Game and then I don't. And actually every song on that title, or every song on that record except for one, starts with I. So. Anyway, can we finish here? I think so. I can't see across the room to how much time is left. So let's, uh, let's start to wrap up. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can at Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Uh, you'll find us everywhere you find good podcasts. Um, take a minute. You can rate and review us. Give us five stars, please. Or don't. Uh, you can type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast, or you could type a ton about why you don't. People have done that. And you can join them if you wish. Uh, and if you can think of one person in your life you think would like the show, send them your, your favorite episode or keep me all to yourself. That's cool, too. Uh, if you'd like to watch the video podcast, you can on our website, thisismpod.com. You can watch the video on our website or click through to the YouTube channel and be one of the only people watching them. Uh, if you happen to go over there, you'll see me in hopefully high definition. I'm, I'm, I'm semi-terrified that I'm actually going to like turn this camera around and see that I haven't been recording. Um... So we'll see. But you should be able to see this episode on YouTube if you choose to. Otherwise, you know, again, another episode I really enjoyed. And, um, you know, I hope it's also entertaining for you. So if it is, thank you. 
Uh, I thank you for listening. I thank you for your time. And ciao for now. <laughs>